My goodness, what an introduction. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Um, Going to take a swig here for a second. Um, wow, so good to be with you all this morning. Um, I'm thankful. I'm overjoyed. I, I'm eager to share with you God's word. I love this church. I love your pastors and, and your leaders here. Um, obviously, for those who are newer, my wife and I still to this day miss attending and worshiping with the saints here at Woodside. Um, even the singing this morning, my goodness, like, did you just put on today? Just like, it was, oh, like, I was weeping. I, I was weeping here in the front row, considering so many Sundays spent here. As one who has been sent out of Woodside in many ways, I've had the privilege of sitting under many different teachers and preachers, um, especially in Texas, um, and hearing God's word from them, but I, I can sincerely say, I mean, w without any flattery at all, I would hands down choose the preaching that you guys receive. I know that you receive every Sunday here. What a blessing you have in, in Mike and Matt and those that they are leading and, and guys who get to, to preach and to teach God's word from this pulpit. Please know how blessed you are to sit under their godliness, their wisdom, and their desire to pursue Christ. I'm actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm partially regretting why I even offered, because I could have heard Matt today and been blessed, so maybe next time I'll just keep my mouth shut. But my desire this morning is to encourage you all by God's grace, so if you would, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're simply going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Today's sermon title is What Love Prays Down for Gospel Friends. What Love Prays Down for Gospel Friends. Please allow me to read God's word for you this morning. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseer and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for what Paul prayed for the Philippians. Lord, would you be with me? Would you allow me to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ here at Woodside? Lord, may your Son be magnified in our lives. 
may we desire all the more to be filled with that fruit of righteousness that cannot come apart from your Son so that we might glorify and praise you. Lord, be with me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, before we begin, I need to do a little housekeeping. I think it's important to establish what is happening here in the letter so that we might understand what we are going to be looking at today. So I have just three very brief introductory points. Number one, the relationship of Paul and Timothy to the Philippians. Number two, the situation of why Paul is writing this letter. And number three, the aim of what Paul hopes to accomplish from the letter. This letter begins with an introduction. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. In the earliest ministry years of Paul to the Gentiles, the Philippian church would have most likely been one of the first Gentile churches Paul established in Europe on his second missionary journey. Paul, after a vision, a man of Macedonia, telling him to come, he decides with Silas, Timothy, and Luke to begin this mission's work, which eventually leads them to Macedonia and then to the city of Philippi. If you want to do some homework after the sermon, go read Acts chapter 16. You can read all about it. Paul met some women there. He shared with them the gospel, and in a sense, the Philippian church was born. Paul and his missionary team there were ministering, but it wasn't long before they together with their new converts begin to experience all kinds of gospel persecution. It gets so bad at one point, Paul is imprisoned, and then eventually he is run out of the city. When this happened, the Philippian church alleviated and even gave financial support to Paul while he was in Corinth. Time goes by, occasion arises where Paul begins a GoFundMe campaign for Jerusalem and Judea, and he wants to raise the money from the Gentile churches that he had planted. Part of this effort was to quell and to demonstrate unity among the Jewish and the Gentile churches. The Galatians controversy, as you know, was, was prominent. Many Jews requiring their Gentile brothers and sisters in the Lord to be circumcised, and all kinds of opponents and leaders attempting to undermine Paul's credibility for his gospel to the Gentiles. And so as Paul traveled through Macedonia, he would have obviously found ways to connect with or warn the Philippians of these things, but knowing that the Philippians were having their own problems, their own financial constraints, their own persecutions, and so he wasn't going to ask them to provide resources to this particular endeavor. However, when they heard of it, when they heard their brother Paul wanting to help those churches in a tremendous demonstration of joy and generosity, they helped Paul. You can read about that generosity in 2 Corinthians 8. All of that to say, the Philippians were deeply committed to and he loved Paul. And Paul deeply cared for and loved the Philippians. So we've established their relationship what is the situation now? Paul finishes that project, but he's the kind of guy who keeps going back to jail. So he's in Rome, he gets jailed again, and he is now in need of personal support. The Philippians at first could not help, but eventually they learn of his imprisonment in Rome. They rally the church again, and they send Epaphroditus, who, hope, who they hope will bring this financial gift to Paul to help him while he's in prison, but also to encourage him but they're actually hoping that he might send Timothy back 
and Timothy might help minister to them in some of the situations that they're facing in their church. So, Paul is in a bit of a cookie now. Number one, he can't send back Timothy because Timothy uniquely can help and encourage him because everybody else has abandoned Paul. Second, Epaphroditus on this trip almost dies. He gets sick. He almost dies. He probably took much longer than expected. And so he comes back without Timothy. And so Paul knows he might receive criticism from the church. We sent you out to bring Timothy. Why are you here, Epaphroditus? You had one job and you failed. Third, Paul also wants to encourage the congregation in their ongoing sacrifice, their generosity. He doesn't want to overlook or minimize. But now he also needs to exhort and rebuke them for the strife between the members in the congregation, but also to encourage them from the dangers of disillusionment, persecution, and their growing anxiety if they would be sustained in all that they are facing there in Philippi. And then fourth and lastly, how does he report his circumstance? He's in jail without alarming them further and discouraging them. So he has to write this letter and he has to basically check all those boxes as he goes. So here is the aim of the letter then. Very briefly, man, I love the New York horns. We don't have that in Texas. We do not have that in Texas. Major themes of the letter. He writes for the joy of his brethren. He writes for his friends that they might grow in a knowledge of the Lord. He writes with joy himself as he thinks about labors and lives for the gospel message and its fruit, not contingent upon his circumstances, not contingent on what he's experiencing, but all with joy himself for Christ. And then he wants to let them know until they have perfect joy, until Christ comes again. And so he wants to flesh out these themes of joy. How can we live the Christian life when we are persecuted on every side and yet to God be the glory. And he repeats this idea throughout the letter again and again. And so we briefly touched on the relationship. We briefly touched on the aim and the situation. And what we see is that Paul has a tremendous affection, sacrifice, time-tested love of the Philippians to support Paul. And Paul, as he shared, preached, and encouraged the Philippians. So with all of that being said now, fresh in our minds, let's look at Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Brothers and sisters, consider for a moment how you pray for others. Think about how you pray for others. How do you pray for gospel friends? When we take prayer requests and pray for one another, we often ask this question. Brother or sister, how can I be praying for you? person responds with something that they have going on at work. Maybe they're praying for somebody's health. Maybe there's a family situation. Maybe it's something with school. Maybe, just maybe, we will get a little bit vulnerable and we will share our heart a little bit, maybe a particular sin struggle that we have, some temptation, and we ask, would you please pray for this heart issue? But before you even come to the Lord and even ask a blessing for what they think they need, when was the last time you prayed, Lord, thank you 
Lord, thank you for Pastor Matt. Thank you that you saved him by your word. Thank you that despite growing up in a Christian household, he could have been deceived into thinking that he was following Christ when he was really just a punk. That he was in college chasing who knows what. Thinking that he was just following I'm a Christian, I go to church, and yet God opened his eyes to the darkness, to the reality of his sin, and he repented and turned to Jesus. And now he's here in Woodside, in New York, preaching faithfully week by week. What about the Whithowers? Faithfully raising all their girls at this church. Faithfully being at Woodside for generations, having all their girls. I think Hannah's watching maybe. Hello, Hannah, how are you? Sorry you couldn't be at church today. Them being godly examples for, for years in this body and able to share their wisdom. Jen and Andy, Matt took the thunder away. They, they met here at this church. Two KCFs from different parts of New York coming together into one flesh and now here in Woodside with a daughter. Andy's talents, his abilities, the way that he faithfully served music. Lord, thank you for what you've done in Andy's life that he might faithfully choose and select songs that bring me into a place of God-glorifying worship. When was the last time you opened up your prayer with thanksgiving for the saints? Christians, are your prayers marked by thanksgiving for what God has already done in the life of the believer? not what he might also do. What do your prayers sound like for your gospel friends? To what ends are you praying for those friends? And so the big question is, do we learn anything from Paul when he opens up the letter saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. So brothers and sisters, what should characterize the prayers we pray for gospel friends? And so I have three points for us this morning. Number one, love prays with the affection of Christ. Love that prays for gospel friends is a love that is infused with the affection of Christ. Paul is unashamed to use incredibly strong language to convey how much he wishes he could be with and among them once again. He says in Philippians verse 8, God is my witness how I yearn. We don't use that. Yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. Consider that language. I'll speak for the brothers here in the room. I think most guys would have a hard time Speaking this way, I have enough awkwardness telling the men in my family that I love them, let alone, brother, I, I yearn for you. <laughs> I hold you in my heart. I, I, I can't stop praying for you and thinking about you. Guys don't talk that way. But, but Paul is not afraid of expressing in the slightest his love for them. He goes over the top to describe his love. He patterns his love after the affection and the author of love, Jesus Christ. He yearns for them. 
He has a burning within him, as it were, to be with them again. And when he means that, he's not just talking about physically, just being physically present in the same space. He wants to be a part of their lives. He wants to hear what is going on. Paul is effectively communicating, I want to be there to comfort you. I want you to be able to comfort me. I want to encourage you. I want to rejoice with you. I want to weep with you. I want to knit my heart to yours more and more. You ever spend time with a person, many, many hours, and it doesn't do a single thing to move the needle of your relationship. But then some event happens, it's a short weekend, it's a late night, and the conversation between you two, something happens, you crack open like a book, and you share your very soul, you stay up late, you wake up late, and maybe, depending on how close you are to this person, you're like, maybe I, maybe I overshared, right? Like, my wife is always telling me, I think I overshared, I think I shouldn't have said those things. And, but then that person comes up to them and says, no, no, no. I was blessed, I think, the way you were blessed. And I feel closer to you now. And I want to pursue an ongoing relationship with you. This is the kind of love and connection Paul wants with the Philippians. And what he knows they feel for him. This love came about because the Philippians showed again and again their commitment to Paul and his ministry of the gospel. By giving to his needs in his previous imprisonments, and for the ongoing defense, proclamation, and confirmation of the gospel in his ministry. So for that, Paul says in verse 7, I hold you dear in my heart. You are partakers with me in grace. Yes, I may have been the one who came to Macedonia, to Philippi. I may have given you the good news to come to Christ, but I am a servant like you. I am no better. I am a sinner saved by grace. I don't hold myself superior to you. You are all partakers with me in grace. Undeserved, unmerited grace. We are saved by the same gospel of our Lord. Brothers and sisters, might we seek to express more often our hearts and love for one another? How can we grow in affirming and being loving toward one another? Christians should not be shy to demonstrate and speak and show love, affection, care. Paul is over the top with his friends in getting them to know without a doubt that he loves them. And he does so because they are partakers of God's grace. He truly sees them as his family. So, are you expressing and showing that heart and affection to each other? Or are we trying to keep it cool? Jenny always calls me Mr. Cool Guy when I'm trying to be, you know, like, you know, God come and give me a hug, and you know, I really like him, but I'm, yeah, he's cool, man, he's cool, man. Just like, and she's like, why, why are you trying to be Mr. Cool Guy? How many of us are trying to be Mr. Cool Guy or gal in the way that we show affection? Let us grow comfortable in emulating the affection of Christ for one another in the body. Give a hug. I was a little nervous. I'm in Texas. COVID doesn't exist there, right? And so when I came back, I'm like, will they give me a hug? 
Some of y'all hesitated. I don't know what that means. Give each other a hug. Find ways to be together. Encourage each other warmly. Serve one another as you are able and as the body needs. Care well for each other. Thank God for one another. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul is saying every time, every time I think about you Philippians, anytime I'm reminded of you, anytime I go to the Lord specifically to pray for you, when I think about my ability to do the ministry that I have, I am thanking my God for you every time for you. Why? Because in verse 5 he says, because of your partnership in the gospel. How you embraced and contributed so faithfully, so sacrificially, so generously, so lovingly to the efforts of the gospel from the first day that I got there until now my imprisonment in Rome. You have been there through thick and thin. Paul is saying, church, we've been through some stuff. You've partnered with me from the beginning and, and not just once, but again and again and again. Church, you love the gospel. You love our Lord Jesus Christ. You have loved me. You are just missionary supporting, gospel promoting, sacrificial, living, breathing testimonies of God's faithfulness. Oh, how the gospel saves, brothers and sisters. And he says, I am so thankful for you. Every prayer, all the time, I do so with joy when I think about how God has been so good to you. To me, for all the churches that exist because of your sacrifice. Because Paul prays this way, the conclusion I am trying to make is Christian prayer for others should be marked by a Christ-like affection and thanksgiving. Saints, does your prayer life for others consists of first praying up thanksgiving and joy to God for what he has accomplished in and through them because of Jesus. So before you pray down any blessing for those you love, are you first praying up thanksgiving, remembering all the good things God has done in that person's life, the serving that you may have done together, the excellent and God-glorifying things that a person has done, not because there's something praiseworthy in them. No, no, no. What God has done in them, that is the thing that is worthy of praise. The gospel being manifested by their changed hearts. And we give thanks and praise to God for what He is doing. Can you point to a friend who labors in the Lord, give thanks, or even say that, that it gives you joy, that it gives you joy to remember them? I thank God for them, the difficult and maybe impossible things that could only be explained by the grace of God in their life. I thank God for that, and I thank God for you. When was the last time you asked to hear a testimony of a close friend again? Like, fam, tell me what God did in you again. I love hearing the story of what God did to move you from death to life. I, I want you to tell this brother or sister in Christ what God did for you. I want to hear it again. Tell them what you told me. 
Testimonies are not just for the baptism day. It's not just for the church membership day. It's to rejoice in God saving a dead sinner, bringing them to new life. When was the last time you refreshed yourself in the testimony of a brother and sister? Andy, I don't, I don't remember yours. We had to talk after. Your testimony, brother. So maybe this point is better summarized by saying, before love prays down a prayer for a gospel friend, does it pray up a praise, a word of thanksgiving? Do you feel genuine joy in God for what he has done in the lives of other brothers and sisters? Are your interactions and prayers infused with the affections of Christ-like love because of the work of God, the evidence of grace in their life? Love prays with the affection of Christ. Point number two, love prays with future hope in God's work. Love prays with future hope in God's work. Paul, in verse six, says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Now, on the day of Jesus Christ is a much bigger theme than I can cover in one sermon, but here's the idea, because it's mentioned twice in these 11 verses. The day of Christ, even as Mike prayed this morning, is a future hope. It's an anticipation. It's the assurance that Christ will come again. What motivated a bunch of poor Philippian church members to gather the scraps that they had in order to give to gospel work? What, what motivated that? It was the anticipation, the Lord's coming again, and they knew this world's passing away. This caused them not to hold tightly to worldly things that could minimize their gospel impact. They held loosely to resources knowing that they ultimately belonged to the Lord. They demonstrated their trust and their hope and their confidence, their anticipation that Jesus was going to be arriving on the scene soon, and he was going to do much more than temporarily relieve or comfort them. So until Jesus returned, they looked for ways to bless, to help, to expand and promote kingdom work, and so they gave freely. They gave generously. They gave joyfully because they believed and trusted the day of the Lord drew near, and they wanted to do their part in helping Paul or really anyone else draw more to the household of God. But now think about that for a second. It's 2023. It is over 2,000 years later. Jesus has not returned yet. The day of the Lord has not yet come. Does that mean the Philippians were sold a, a false bill of goods? Were their efforts and the things that they were contributing to in vain? I think we can be tempted because we've looked at 2,000 years of history and we can conclude, all right, why should I give so sacrificially? I mean, there's no signs of Jesus showing up again anytime soon. So let me say this very briefly, about their labor and our efforts and them not being in vain. Number one, your Father in heaven sees what you do in secret. Nothing is forgotten by the Lord, things that are done 
for the Lord. Two, we're blessed to draw they and we as we contribute to gospel endeavors are blessed to see and watch many more come to the household of faith. The Philippians saw the progress. They saw the missionary report of Paul. Third, they received the blessing of experiencing God sustaining them in the midst of their trials and afflictions. Fourth, it gave glory and honor to the God they said they believed in. By trusting in his good and faithful promises and obeying his commands, even in the midst of losing everything. Fifth, they received joy. And their reward, Paul says later, grows all the more to their credit. So for some of us who think, well, what's the point of living the faithful Christian life today of obedience and trust? And that leads you to then go, eh, the Lord's not coming back anytime soon. I'm afraid that demonstrates your care may be more about what the optics of Christianity looks like, how does it look and feel for you, rather than obedience of what Christianity says. That says, I will live and serve and promote the kingdom of God and trust in God's designs, His plans, His will over mine until the Lord comes because I know He is coming. Paul reminds them, He encourages them by giving them this amazing promise. What God began in you, He will, He will bring it to completion. The good work that was made manifest in you from the beginning, faith in Jesus Christ, suffering persecution, giving out of love, whether it be for me, for the gospel, to the needs of the church, God began all of that in you. All glory go to God for what he began in you, brothers and sisters. So be encouraged, because what he began, he will complete. He will finish. It's sure. And so he is saying to them, brothers and sisters, one day you won't have to fight for joy. It will be yours forevermore. One day faith will become sight. One day our Lord will make all things new. One day your heavenly Father will reward your faithful and obedient living. The salvation of countless souls by your offering and support will have history-altering effects because of what God started in you, how God is using you, and what He is bringing to completion for His glory. Church, when you pray for gospel friends, is that the kind of prayer that you offer up. Lord, continue to multiply the work of this brother or sister. Lord, we ask that it would, it would yield fruit. Lord, bring about the completion of salvation, of sanctification, and the life of this friend. Bless and encourage and remind them again and again of the good work you began, not what they began. Manifest your presence. Do not make them weary in doing good when things become hard or difficult or, or gospel plans seem to dry up or slow down. Paul says, I am sure of this. Verse 6 and 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you because the testimony of your initial conversion, your initial act of gospel love, your partnership in the gospel, it is all a reminder, it is all an evidence 
of the grace that you have received. I want to encourage you, gospel friend. I want to remind you of all that God has done for you. I want to point to all the manifestations of grace in your walk. I want to tell them to you boldly. I want to confidently remind you, with all the loving affection I can summon, that he who began a good work, he will bring it to completion. Brothers and sisters, pray expectantly, knowing the future grace of God will give to his saints, or that he is giving to his saint, is already seen in the past grace he has given. It is already yours. Pray that they would not falter. Pray that they would take heart. Remind them of their first love, Jesus Christ. Remember, brothers and sisters, what the Lord saved you out of. What He saved you into. And what He is saving you from. He will bring it to completion. Our hope is fixed. We can pray with an eye to the future hope of God's glory. Third and final point. Love prays for gospel growth. Love prays for gospel growth. My argument this morning is not that you would stop praying for your friends, maybe get healthy, to fight and put sin to death, to alleviate suffering or adversity. But that is not what Paul was praying for them. That's what they were experiencing, but that's not what Paul is praying for them. In fact, I think he intentionally leaves out from his prayer to open this letter, it doesn't even consist in asking the Lord to help them suffer less or that their persecution would go away or that their burdens would be lightened. Rather, he prays for continued gospel growth. He prays that they would grow in love. He prays that they would grow in knowledge, in all discernment, that they would be filled with all manner of fruit He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness. More gospel works. More testimonies of God using them. More radical, potentially, gospel giving. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says this. He who gave himself, Jesus Christ, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Why? who are zealous for good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, We are His workmanship. He has saved us, created in Christ Jesus, for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Ephesians is telling us God has prepared the works already that we are then to walk in. And so I feel at times personally... I was part of the young restless reform movement in college, right? Right. We, are, we can spend so much time making sure that everybody knows that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we get stuck there and we don't realize that once you understand justification by faith, once you realize that your works add nothing to your salvation, we are meant to put our hands to the plow of good works that God has prepared for us beforehand. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, the Christian life will take you to incredible places of God-wrought, unexplainable works of obedience. Christ purchased them for you to go and to do. You are His workmanship. Christians are to bear fruit. So what I mean by that is Christian lives should be filled with a kind of activity that if other people are looking at you and your life, the only conclusion for why you might be doing whatever ministry or obedience, oh, it has to be because God is at work in doing something in them. We are to be zealous, jealous for the glory of God, to live out gospel lives that are aimed at the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ alone. If that is the kind of Christian life we should all be seeking to imbibe, then when was the last time you prayed for a friend? God, help my gospel friend through whatever situation they may be in right now in order that they might get back to gospel, God-glorifying labor. Pray that they would focus on doing your will. Pray that the works prepared beforehand would go unhindered. Give them abundant fruit in their walk with you. Help them get busy for the kingdom. Have you prayed? Lord, make them busier with opportunities for gospel work that demonstrate your power, your glory, your sufficiency, your spirit at work in them. Give them the kind of fruit that can only have its source in you. You get the glory. Help them grow in a knowledge. Help them to expand their love more and more. Grow them so they will continue to be zealous for good works. Who prays like this? I don't pray like this. I am constantly praying for whatever you tell me you think you need. Lord, help reduce the persecution. Help alleviate the suffering. Fire that boss who's making them feel that way. Help them recover their resources. Sustain them at their job. Those are not bad prayers. Do not hear me saying those are bad prayers. But don't hear me saying that. But I almost never pray for my friends. Lord, make them busier with things for your kingdom. I rarely am praying, Lord, increase their love for others and a knowledge of you so that they might discern what kind of gospel work they ought to be doing. Help them be filled with abundant fruit that comes from pursuing you in righteousness. Much of my prayers for other saints are, Lord, help them get straight. Help them to get neutral. Help them to feel more comfortable. Help them to stabilize. But what happens after they get that? I think our attitude toward the Christian life would actually become more meaningful if we didn't always pray that everyone would just get back to status quo so that we can just coast until the next big discouragement or low season that we need to be prayed out of again. No, I want to see your cup overflow, saint. Get out there and live that Christian life to the glory of God. Let's affirm the good works in others. Let's affirm the grace that God is giving. Let's spur one another on toward kingdom work. Let's have an attitude of, of what can I do to pray lovingly for you so that you can get back to service of the kingdom so that God's 
glory may abound in this world. So that on the final day, gospel friend, I hope you are presented pure and blameless. Now, when you read that, you have to ask a theological question. What do you mean at the end, be pure and blameless? That can't mean that we've now worked some form of justification. Like, thank you, Jesus, for starting what I couldn't start, but I'll bring this, I'll I'll carry the pole down to the end. No. Rather, as the day of Christ approaches, he is suggesting that more of our lives would reflect the inward reality of what God has done already. That the gap between the purity that is theirs already in Christ, it's, it's on lock, it's unshakable, it is yours, you are pure in his sight because of the work of Jesus, but now you're brought to a place where you're closer than where you were. You are moving toward the reality that Christ is bringing you to. And now it's actually made manifest in them before the day it becomes perfected. So it is manifesting more and more until it is ours completely and wholly when he returns. Friends, the Christian life is not merely, all right, let me get right with Jesus. Let me get my, you know, get out of jail free card. Let me put my fire insurance policy in so that then I can pursue all the stuff that I want. Belief in the gospel is not the finish line. If we, if we just get people to become believers, if we can just get people to say a prayer, get baptized, get them to become members in our church, take communion, great, that's a win, let's move on. No. Time to go find more unbelievers now to put them in that framework and churn it out. No, once we are saved, we are saved to get busy, to no longer work for merit, to work for our salvation, to work for our righteousness. We are made new creatures, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ to become servants of God, His will, His kingdom, His work. It's not out of compulsion. It's not out of fear. It's not out of duty. It's out of delight. It's out of honor. It's out of joy for what God has given to me already. So if any of you are not a Christian today, you first need to realize Yes, Paul is writing to Christians, but he continues to be about the gospel. The gospel is the A through Z of the Christian life. We never graduate from the gospel. It is of first importance. And so he's not telling them anything he probably didn't already tell them, stuff that they would have already been pressing into, but he is stirring up and reminding them that all that Jesus is for them. So some of you in here need to hear first and foremost that you were a sinner separated from God and all of your outward works of performance, of trying to impress other people, it is doing nothing to merit you salvation. God does not see that. He is not honored by it. You need to come to Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and believe in His work, His resurrection, and you need to put away a work-set mentality that you can earn grace, earn mercy, earn love. No, Christians don't work to earn anything. They work because of what was already given to them as a gift by grace. 
Paul befriended these non-Jewish, pagan, worshipers of uh, of money, idols, and self, who had no affiliation, no hope, separated from the commonwealth of Israel. Paul, a former Pharisee, a Jew, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews through and through, he says, no, God has called you Gentiles out of darkness into his marvelous light that those outside the covenants of God that we see in the Old Testament are now welcomed in because of what Jesus has inaugurated in the New Testament. Jesus came to die for sinners such as yourselves. And so if you have not put your hope in Jesus Christ, if you are not a Christian bought by his blood, if you do not understand the love of God, hear the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for you. Your sins can be pardoned. You don't have to work your nails to the bone. Christ has done the work for you. And he can wipe away your guilt before a holy God. And he can grant you a new heart, new life, and a joy-filled one. Better than any one that you can create for yourself. To the saints in the room, this week marks a milestone for Jenny and I. We will celebrate 10 years of marriage on March 9th. I remember inviting Matt to the wedding. He highlighted some of the details. All of these things, I cannot help but feel that Philippians, I'm not Paul, I'm I'm not going there. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I have prayed this for you all. We have kept you in our hearts. We love coming to visit you. And this is what we are praying for you. And I am so encouraged by what I see Matt and Mike doing to see you all gathered here this morning to sing the praises of God. Saints, I want to encourage you in all that you are doing to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to fight the good fight of faith. The Lord is pleased with you because of his son. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we are so thankful for Christ. Without Christ, Lord, we have nothing. But we are left in our sin. And joy will forever escape us because you, the source of our joy, would not be ours. Lord, I just pray for my friends. I pray for my gospel friends that they would continue to grow in the gospel. That they would continue to give their lives so that your name, your kingdom might be magnified. To you be the glory. Lord, do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Give us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.